Welcome to Pine with Shawnee B coming to you today from dreary, dismal, rainy Ballam in London. My guest just said it's still not summer, but it should be. She is Jan Gooding. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Jan has got a CV as long as my arm. Right now she's president of the Market Research Society of UK. That's right. She's the chair of a company called Stonewall, who are LGBT rights charity. Rights yeah. charity. And she's also a consultant at Jericho Chambers. She's worked at so she's considered probably to be one of the greatest clients in, in well, the I don't know about that. Well, That's very know, kind of you, you to know say. The, well, you know the way we get because you worked in the advertising. So she's worked in the advertising business. She's worked in as a client mainly with companies called like BT and British Gas and Aviva most recently. And she has her own consultancy, as as she says, she has three legs of the stool covered. But you know from your agency days how hard it is to find a client who kind of really gets it or who's brave enough to, to do, you know, things that we all feel they should be doing. And so you get, they get put into a box and you can go, oh, the gorilla people and there's the old people, the, the guy who did it. One of my favourite ads, someone asked me recently, uh, wrote to me and said, what's your favourite ad? What's your favourite ad of all time? Do you remember those wonderful ads? They were the original Ardman uh, oh, yeah, animated creature comforts, creature comforts Did you do to that? do with no I didn't but no. honestly if there was one campaign that I thought was absolutely astonishing mm. if, if there were such a thing as desert island ads yeah. they would be That's in it but, but I thought the the technique was so astonishing mm. the realism and all you know we talk about authenticity now absolutely what's more boring than your electricity and your radiators yeah. and so converting the benefits of electricity and heating yeah. into something so human and astonishing. It was just So wonderful. the way, uh, there's a link to these ads uh, Jan's talking about at the blur of the podcast, but the way they did it was they went out to old people, young people, and they just interviewed them, like what we're doing here, audio. Yeah. And then they went to this claymation company and created animals that talked like real people. I mean, it's very simple. Just delightful. That, that, that army campaign was the people who, who eventually went on to make Wallace and Grom, and it was kind of their early kind of Iterations, but yeah, they could run that today, you know, and we don't. My favourite, you probably won't, won't like, but I, I only recently changed it because I saw it again and I just went, that is just the most extraordinary piece of art stroke advertising. It was the Dunlop Tires Tested for the Unexpected by Tony Kay. Oh, right. Which at the time polarised a lot of people because it was like, yeah, it's a tire for God's sake. But I watched it recently on YouTube and it is magnificent. I mean, it's even better in 2019 than in 1989 or whenever it came out. Again, I think there's something about ads that take their time. Yeah. You know, that, that a brand is so clear about what they want to say. Actually taking your time just to say something hmm. really profound. I, I was actually um, genuinely moved to tears. I mean, that may sound odd. The Nike ad, the, the day one. that Casta Semenya didn't get her ruling in her favour as an hmm. athlete to compete. Hmm. She's a intersex at least and there's been a lot of fuss around whether she can as it were run as a woman as nature created her or whether because she has a very high level of testosterone whether there should be a medical intervention yeah really horrifying horrifying and the day she lost her case nike had obviously prepared this ad almost for whatever the outcome Mm. which in a way i admire as well ran it on the day and actually in a way it was the grittiest because the ruling didn't go for her and the ad was all about running the way i was born and i i because i chair stonewall because i know how tough it is 
because I think brands have to be so careful about where they enter into these political yeah. uh, debates, particularly around identity, it genuinely moved me to tears yeah. because it was so beautifully done. The one thing people on this podcast don't want to talk about and ask to get cut out is the whole trans intersex. Do they really? Yeah, they're oh, well, you've come to the right woman. <laughs> I do understand that because um, it's a subject you can't approach just on the basis of common sense. So you can to the extent that you can say, my view is I will accept people for who they are. I yes. believe in respect and, don't be mean. and let people just get on with their lives and, and I don't mind. Be, whoever you are is kind yes. of fine with me. So you can, on a common sense level, just have that generous approach to humanity, if yes. you like. But once you get into the specifics of the language, the descriptions and the issues, people do get very nervous because it's actually quite a lot to understand and you can easily find you're clumsy in your speech or you haven't quite understood something. Mm. Somehow there seems to be huge opportunity to cause offence yeah. or to be offended and I have certainly found I can do nothing but engage with it because I doubt there's a weekend goes by where I'm at not some kind of social occasion mm. where someone will tackle me about it precisely because they have really strong feelings. They're quite wound up about it and they don't know where to go almost as a safe place to either ask questions or sound off about it. Because everyone doesn't want to talk about it, we should a little bit deeper because I'm still a little bit unclear about a few things. I'm unclear about the sport element. I'm unclear about, uh, you know, if a, a female to male trans person wants to box against men, I think that could be dangerous. Do you? No? So I think there are a number of things to unpack here. The first thing to say is that in this country, in the UK, people actually don't understand what has already been accepted, both in the medical profession and in law. So there's two things to say about that. The World Health Organization have ruled already that being trans is not a mental health condition. In other words, it's a natural state. It's not something yeah. to be cured or treated. Yes. And that's a very important thing because it's not so very long ago that being gay was regarded as a no, mental health exactly. issue. And frankly, there are still people who think it can be cured. So once you understand that the medical profession says, this is a, for some people, this is who they are, and it's not something you cure, and it's not a mental health issue you do get into the zone of acceptance. Yes. In law in this country, uh, in 2003, I think it was, it was agreed that two things. If once you change your, effectively your birth certificate, which is mm -hmm. what a gender recognition certificate is, it's actually saying, in law, I wish to change my gender, which is incredibly important if you transition. You want your passport, you want your driver's license, you want your insurance you want everything to reflect who you are either transitioning to a man or to a woman the conversation is around that process which currently can take two to three years to go through mm -hmm. people don't realize that they think it's about whether you should be allowed a certificate or not whether you should be able to change your identity in terms of your gender um, when it comes to sport i do think sport and safe spaces for women they are special 
issues. I think with regard to the safety of men and women who have transitioned, each sporting body, this is Stonewall's position, should be looking at their own sport with the attitude of wanting to include trans people in the sport Mm -hmm. as much as possible. Because remember, sport is not just at the elite. It's also in schools and at a community level. So it it all depends on the attitude from which you come. If you come in the sport from the attitude of, can we include everybody in this sport? I don't see why you can't include everyone in boxing because you have men's boxing and you have women's boxing. I'm not an expert on boxing, but I know that it's categorised according to weight. And so there are ways and and rules which they have that apply to boxing to introduce what they regard as fair play. And that's what you would have to consider. If you took a sport like horse riding or sailing, it's different again. There's a lot of concern in particular around athletics at the moment. So I think what Stonewall's view is each sporting body, depending on the nature of the sport and the rules that they have anyway, Mm. need to be thoughtful about, so how do you qualify to compete in this sport at that level? You only have to look at the Paralympics to see the complexity of trying to categorise ability. To know that there is no perfect answer. Yeah. So you could say, well, it's just easier, isn't it, if we we just exclude people with disabilities from sport, because that's easier. Or do you actually try and come up with a framework which, albeit is not perfect, mm. at least allows uh, people to compete and participate? So my point of view is, needless to say, from a Stonewall point of view, is as much about the safety of the trans people as it is about anybody else. Mm. And in sport, how can you make it possible for trans people to be included? Is it possible? And how can that be made possible? Right. And it is fraught. Yes, it is. It is, it is at the moment because people because I think there's a lot of transphobia. So so, so, there. so a man I read recently and again, you know, what unfortunately what happens is outliers last year we had the repeal the 8th referendum in Ireland, so finally we're not shipping our women over here pretending we don't have an abortion. In Ireland, there was nice observations that a lot of older Catholic mothers and women, when they got to the ballot box, put a massive yes, you know, irrespective of God, church, religion, because they just saw the absolute shame. I mean, it was just an an ungovernable law that was patriarchally put in place by the church in Ireland, basically removed. But and so and so you start and in, in that debate the point I was making is you see the outliers right you have the fatal fetal abnormalities you have the the issues that are, are are thankfully few but you have to build law to accommodate. Recently there was a, a comment which was uh, you know if you're if you're a male who doesn't fancy a, a preoperative trans person or you know from from um, male to female that you can be transphobic. And I kind of go, well, I don't really agree with that. You're I, don't even un- I don't even understand words like that. I mean, honestly, for me, this is a sort of intellectual torture test of trying to come yeah. up with what's the most impossible scenario. <laughs> I mean, you fancy who you fancy, yeah. don't you? Yeah. When have we ever said you're phobic because you don't fancy something? Fancying yeah. someone is so complex and it's much beyond body parts. Mm. 
the idea that trans women are trying to impose themselves on lesbians is utterly ludicrous. Yeah. So I'm afraid I hold no truck with that. And I mean, people like Graham Lanahan are saying, oh, you know, people, men are going to dress up as women to go into ladies' toilets. But they could do that anyway. I know, exactly. I mean, exactly. Th- these are... I go back to what I said at the beginning, which mm. is it may have come as a big surprise to everybody now, and I yeah. don't know... There's a number of things as to why people are so much more trans-aware, intersex-aware than they were... But I put to you the fact that the law has existed for 16 years, which has allowed people to self-identify. Because if I said to you today, I've decided to come out, I need you to know, I'm coming out as John, I'm no longer Jan. From the moment I say that to you, I'm protected in law as trans. I don't have to have changed the certificate, I don't have to have gone on any I don't have to have done anything I've effectively come out in the way that I might come out and say that I'm a lesbian that has existed for 16 years and we have not seen the papers bursting with stories of trans people being imposters nor actually fraudulent men being imposters either it's not a chosen path so men are as violent as they've ever been Men have been sexual predators as much as there have ever been. Women have felt vulnerable. Trans women are even more vulnerable than women. So let's get back to the big picture of the issues around patriarchy and the issues around, if you like, the, the violence of men and the vulnerability of women, which is a completely separate thing to people who are who are trans, which we estimate are about 1% of the population, as much as you can guess what that is. They are as real as gay people. So what I find very fascinating is that 30 years ago when Stonewall was established, people were having difficulty about being gay. That's why Stonewall was formed. Now suddenly being gay seems easy because trans has become the difficult thing. But the things that trans women are accused of are exactly the same things that gay men were accused of 30 years ago. Gay men are sexual predators. They're actually paedophiles. It won't be safe to go into a men's toilet because if you go in men's toilets, that's where, yeah, they'll all be pouncing on you and grabbing your dick and, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to be teachers. They shouldn't be allowed anywhere near schools. They're not real men. I mean, that was Lord Cashman, who's one of the founders of Stonewall, said to me that he was described as not a real man. So in the same way trans women are told they're not real women, they're actually predators, they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near children. You know, this they are natural criminals. All of this is very disquieting, and I don't understand why people don't see that parallel and understand that these, these fears... You know, what is, a, what is transphobia or homophobia? It's an unjustified fear, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. what I observe. So turning somersaults, coming, trying to come up with scenarios where somehow you're being forced to go to bed with someone you that don't you don't fancy, fancy. Yeah. I mean, it's ludicrous, is isn't it? it? And why is that? Why is there such a... There's a regressive... So there's a thing called regressive left, okay? Which I'm sure... I don't know where you... I'd love to know where you stand in that. And I suppose loosely regressive left is it's... I suppose that's where the word snowflake was born and stuff like that, where every... Where it's just everything 
you've got to watch what you say all the time. I'm, I'm concerned about it from a comedian point of view and comedians not being able to, I'm not talking about racism, but like having to watch exactly what they say. Doug Stanley was a, a favourite comic of mine, came out at the Apollo, pulled up, put on his glasses, took out a piece of paper and read an apology before he started, which I thought was quite funny to where he might offend in the, in the show. Do you believe that it can go too regressive? I think the truth of the matter is that identity is really important mm-hmm. and where I said to you at the beginning, as human beings, we should be trying to approach each other in an attitude of humanity and kindness, kindness yeah. and curiosity. People often say to me, what should I say? What are the right words to use? And I go, well, I'm afraid the answer is it depends because it's up to the, you know, well, some person. people don't want to be called black. They prefer to be called a person of colour. Mm-hmm. Other people hate that. So it, it seems to me, because you can never pin down the truth, around identity and language and what causes offence. Therefore, intent is everything. So what was your intention when you said that thing? And I think if your intention was hate, if your intention was to cause offence and hurt, then it's probably not okay. And I don't think that's about being um, being a snowflake. It's just about being mutually respected. I, I, I'm not a person of faith. I do not make remarks about people who have faith. Why would I do that? There's no need to. I accommodate the fact that people feel differently. I have difficulty with people of other faiths trying to impose their faith on me. Well, there's much more of that that goes on, isn't Mm. there? Yes. You don't don't generally... People who are are atheists, yeah, don't generally go around trying to persuade people to to be the same. So I think we have to be very careful about... What do we mean by mutual respect? And often it's the things that you find very difficult, challenging yourself. Can you actually work alongside someone who you know thinks very differently to you? I think it's possible. It depends, therefore, on what their language and what their behaviour is. So what's not okay is hurting other people through what you say or what you do if you're going to be work colleagues. Agree. I think humour is a funny one. The recent Joe Brand uh, incident has become a little bit defining. I found people talking about that a lot over the weekend. She made a joke about throwing milkshakes on politicians is pathetic. Actually, they should use some battery acid. And there's been this huge fuss and she's ended up having to apologise and the BBC have cut the joke out of the programme and all that kind of thing. That's and I right. thought yeah. and I thought that was a testing example, going with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Because for me, I know Joe Brand. I understand, I haven't listened to this programme, but I understand the programme is set up to encourage comedians almost yeah. to be as outrageous as they possibly yeah. can. So that was the context within which anyone listening to the programme would have understood. And we all know that the last thing Joe Brand is ever going to do is either throw battery acid on someone, exactly. nor applaud anyone else for doing it. So it to me, encouraging it. when the context is so obviously um, it was meant to be humorous, I felt it was okay, but other people clearly didn't. Problem, I've no idea whether Joe Brand would have incited someone to that, use that's acid. That's where it goes then, you see, that yeah. we shouldn't say anything. Like, that, what's great about that example is it as, excuse the pun, neutral, battery acid? You know, it's not gender specific, it's not racist, and it's not homophobic, it's about a 
the politician, right? Which again is a is a, an identity sector as well. But it's a good one because it's not as inflammatory, and it, you could sort of study it and go, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I think what was interesting was it was specifically... In what Muslim woman's face, it suddenly gets really scary, right? Well, it was Nigel Farage who really objected, because I think that was the context (laughs) of it. Then I find this quite peculiar, because this is the same Nigel Farage who thinks that it's okay for Anne Widdicombe to say maybe there is a cure for people who are gay. Maybe science in some future date will come up with a cure for these poor people, you know. We can agree so, Farage is a bigot, can't we? Yes, we can yes I think so. And the bigots are complaining about being... I think the thing that's important about humour is it should make us almost say the unsayable. Yeah. So the thing about humour is it allows you, in a way, to diffuse something that, if you told it in a different way, might be more difficult to hear. It's that sort of classic, if you can make people laugh about it, maybe mm. they'll take it on board. The difficulty around identity is in the privacy of your own home or within your family and your friends, your tolerance level is going to be different to a mass market medium. And I think that's where, if you like, role models, politicians, comedians, actors, what they say and the attitudes they have. Um, I think we live in different times now. I think we live in a time of social media and amplification that means, unfortunately, in this case, I think people do need to hesitate sometimes with the quips that they might make because they just go a hell of a lot further than they used to back in the day. So I think that's an adjustment. Um, I would hate for comedians to feel that everything was off bounds, but in the same way that freedom of speech has its limits, you can't have hate speech. In the same way, I'm afraid, I think comedy is also going to have its limits where the comedian or the scriptwriter or the playwright, whoever it is, does have a responsibility about what they're putting out there. And I go back to the intent. What was the intent of that? Yeah. What was the intent of that joke? You know, if it well, was... we're, we're similar vintage. And you go back to the 70s, Roy Chilby Brown, the racism, North of England comics. And that was true racism. I mean, that was you know, packies and all, you know, blah, 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 you know, that was meant as fun and meant as funny, but it was... Yes, but it, it reinforced terrible, terrible yeah. stereotypes. Yes. And actually, if you go back to the butt of women in jokes, the, mother in, the mother-in-law the jokes, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think comedy has something to answer for in the fact that it reinforces the worst of us rather than the best of us. Certainly, I have found, frankly, there's a lot of self-hatred in the LGBT community. And I am disquieted sometimes by the self-mocking of LGBT comedians because it's painful to have somebody whose own self-hatred and lack of acceptance in the world Mm. is being translated into humour which is actually quite cruel against themselves. And yet black American comedians, a lot of them focus in on that area, you know, that they, they kind of take the piss out of you, know, even owning the N-word, and just, which I, I would have called a stroke of genius, although there are people say, you know, we, we should never say that. There are a lot of people in the black community who think it was a mistake to raise it, given the actual, if you really want to go all the way back to that word, word where it came from, it is, it is horrific. But, the, you know, that's an example. Well, this reclaiming of language. So, for instance, it's happening at the moment with the word queer. So queer is yeah. being 
is being reclaimed because everyone gets fed up with LGBTQ, you know, X, Y, Z. And so somehow you, you use the word queer and it just means different, not the, the majority. Yeah. Uh, and that can accommodate gender as well as so- sexual orientation. So suddenly it becomes an attractive word. This is why I'm saying to you, you never catch up. You can never know the script. You've always got to know that if you're going to speak into these areas, and there may well be things I've said even on this podcast that will have offended somebody. Yes. How could the chair of Stonewall possibly have said that? And I'd be the first to say, I'm sorry if that, if that didn't land right. My mm. intention was this, I hear what you say, I'll do better next time. So I think there's a certain humility you have to approach these subjects with and know that you're never going to get there because you're never going to understand at all. And language is both enlightening and a barrier. I mean, I said earlier that I found it hard to get anyone to talk about this. And I don't know enough about it. And I can even see you're looking at me sometimes going, who's better than No, I'm not. No, but like that we're able to have a conversation about it. And people are terrified to have a conversation about it. You are in your position. And your position is one of, I am coming at this to try and do the right thing by the people I represent. I'm coming out to try and learn and hopefully share with people what the latest thinking is. I mean, moving, we're kind of moving backwards from the, from the, from the pointed end back because I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk about the idea that male violence is as bad now as it's ever been because my experience of being around men growing up as a guy in Dublin is a lot less aggression, a lot less fighting, a lot more care for family, a lot more whatever, in Ireland, in Dublin, which was a big drinking town, Mm. which was going home to beat the wife, women being afraid to go and talk about it, being unable to run away, where there's refuges now for women who can, where men will not accept from their friends any suggestion that they might be being violent to to their wives or their children, I'm not, I'm, this is probably from a privileged position, and I'm sure in some working class areas in Dublin. But even there, I just say my hometown, I was away for 21 years and I come back. I think men are kinder. I think they're slightly more open in their emotions than they were back in my father's day where I was growing up with, 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 with again, men around me. I think women are, bra- are braver and more capable and have more support to go out and say, this is not good enough and report it. And men get arrested. Are men more violent now as they've ever been or is that a bit unfair that's such an enormous question Sorry, um, because because i think so the first thing i'd say to you is that it is documented in the united <coughs> kingdom that hate crime has been rising constantly for the last 10 years yes. so that's just hate some of which ends up in violence some of which is done by women as well as men i think when you look at the world As a whole, there is absolutely no doubt that there is still a lot of war going on. We know that rape is used as a weapon of war still. So, okay, there's a famous example of, of, um, I think it's in Rwanda, where there was a successful prosecution afterwards, using the law to go after people who systematically raped women. But I think when you're talking about the violence of men, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about globally, uh, there's a lot of war and there is still a lot of domestic abuse. And yeah. if you look at some of the great faiths, and I would include all of them, mm-hmm. there is a section which is very oppressive oh, to women, whether it's in their clothing, whether it's in their roles that they have, whether it's to do with their access to education, 
So I don't think this is just about our women being beaten up, although I think violent coercion is what is used to dominate these women. Meanwhile, meanwhile, absolutely, in Western working cultures, which is what you and I experience Mm. as our more typical every day, there is absolutely no doubt that workplace culture, and I know because it was my job for two years, has actively been much more inclusive of, as it were, the opposite natural stereotype of the two genders. So men being encouraged to be carers and take the appropriate time off work Mm -hmm. quite openly, whether it's as a parent or whether with caring responsibilities for members of their family, and women being encouraged to feel they can have a career and work. And, And so what defines working men and working women, there is an aspiration that that should be much more equivalent, but it's definitely not there. And I think the more men are respected as carers, the more it gives opportunity for women to be respected as working career women and not simply being defined as carers. And there's a dist- there is a disturbing Jordan Peterson-led, Piers Morgan kind of horrible, horrible kind of... So in that Gillette, I used to work on the Gillette Business Globally, I was their, their head of strategy, uh, and they brought out that ad earlier in the year. And I kind of wrote a piece up about it when it came out because someone asked me to and you know my my position on it was you know it'd be lovely if Gillette were actually going to do a dove on that and actually say we're going to try and build a new generation of great men right which is what the ad was kind of suggesting uh, I don't think it was a pretty good ad but I love the fact that finally Gillette you know who, who I called probably the most benignly misogynistic advertiser of the last 50 years uh, benignly because it's Gillette is kind of get the girl and if you shave you know it's, and women were just stroking shaved cheeks you know or pouting at a man who just had but this ad came out and, and there was there was a kind of a, a male backlash to it I mean, like I no man that I know who's let's say woke who would have any problem with that ad you know it's like yes we want our boys to be to grow up to be decent good men and yet it was like, oh, we're all uh, bad, all men are all bad, here's Morgan, I'm buying, we should all boycott Gillette and all this kind of stuff, and online goes mad, you know. I'm like, There's a brand that should have done this years ago, and it's now tipping its toe in the water. A billion men every day use a Gillette product. That's a big audience you could talk to. Everyone knows how to shave. Why do we keep showing people shaving in our ass? They know who you are. What else you bring well, in the I table? Suppose, uh, so I think the problem with that was it was done in the ads and not in the organisation. So I, I talk a lot about the difference between brand purpose and organisational purposes. Mm. Brand purpose derives from an organisation's purpose. And so the ease with which bright strategists, and I could see it happening and I could have been guilty of it myself, goes, oh, this is cool. We've got this line, the best a man can get. Why don't we make it the best a man can be? I can almost see the presentation and the meeting and we're all high-fiving, going, how fantastic, and here's this trend, and let's get on it. The problem is you can't do it at the back end if it isn't in the organisation. So I think that's what made them vulnerable, and I hope it doesn't put them off trying to fix the organisation. I think the backlash is not surprising. The fragility, both of men... And the fragility also of white people mm. is astonishing to behold. And that's good old-fashioned power structures. And people who have power don't want to give it up. 
So why would Piers Morgan be open to giving away any of his privilege? Because he's done very well out of it, thank you very much. So we have to expect these backlashes. The redistribution of anything never comes without friction. All we can observe economically, and the figures are more developed, it seems to me, in the States than in Europe, but the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer and fewer hands mm-hmm. is absolutely astonishing. The gap, there almost is no middle class. We talk yeah. about the emerging middle class in South America and, and Asia, yeah. and yet we see the middle class completely disappearing in the global north. All of that is very fascinating, that those who have tremendous privilege and wealth are so fragile about it. Mm. Just before we leave the Gillette thing, how do you, and you talk about an organisation, how do you square the Dove campaign for real beauty? And yet Dove is owned by Unilever, who themselves have Axe, for example, or Lynx deodorant, which is, you know, quite a mis- tongue-in-cheek, if you can say it's tongue-in-cheek misogyny, but yeah, it's misogynistic. It's, put this on and girls will flock to you. When you say the brand has to act, are you cool with a brand within an organisation that maybe does something different with... I love Unilever. I think they're a very thoughtful and intelligent company and I, they've been a client of mine. Yeah, I've worked with them. And I do admire the Dove campaign because I think it was leading on social attitudes. But I, I think that absolutely was difficulty for them, that the parent company was on the other hand, doing other things. In fact, there was a, there was a backlash, there were campaigns. Yes, Don't yeah. let your daughter anywhere near these brands. For me, of more profound difficulty, when I worked with Unilever in India, was coming across a brand called Fair and Lovely, which was a skin whitening. Same, same I mean, China. absolutely shocking. I had yeah. no idea such products even exist. So there we are all going, gosh, how extraordinary. And in India, there's a caste system and it's to do with the colour of your skin. And yet there is Unilever selling brands, peddling the idea of fairer skin being better than darker skin. So because Unilever are an intelligent and thoughtful organisation, it's much more important when they go upstream and they're actually talking about sustainability, when they take a position which is against stereotyping, I think that's very, very profound, and I would expect to see that work out through the the range of brands that they have. But no, I don't think you can sit as the corporate with Axe and Lynx on the one hand being grab the girl, and Dove on the other hand saying be authentic. Let's keep going back up the funnel wider. What's the state of play with women in our business, in the marketing world, or in, in general? Are we making progress? The challenge for women is to stop talking about gender and to talk about other things. I feel women in the business are just waking up to this, that actually white women have enormous privilege and that the more you do to think about disability, uh, people of colour, LGBT, ageism, other things, the more you will help the gender agenda. And it's actually, frankly, why I called myself inclusion director, not diversity director, because if you say diversity, people go to gender. Companies have this terrible habit of going, let's just prioritise three things. What do we do first and then we'll get to the rest? (laughs) 
And the reason why there's been such slow progress on the gender issue is because we just focused on gender. And actually, if we talked more broadly about inclusion in the round, and if you have an inclusive culture, you will then get the diversity you'll seek. We would have included everybody on the journey and we would have got there faster. So I think the progress of women has been glacial. It's one of the things that makes me most angry as I look back on my career, not just the shit that I had to deal with along with my own contemporaries, but that so much of it still goes on. It's absolutely appalling. You know, I meet and talk to good men like you. I went to university with good men like you. I thought my cohort got it and my cohort were going to change it. But the problem is the system suits certain people. And once the system's working for you, why are you going to earn less, progress less quickly in order to ensure that there's there's equal opportunity. That's just not how individuals behave. So as a collective, I feel very, very let down by my peer group. And I don't think we should feel proud of um, the conditions we've created for the next generation coming through. I'm very proud of being part of WACL. WACL is the Women in Advertising Club London. It's nearly 100 years old. And it was formed because when women used to work in marketing... They couldn't easily socialise with their male clients without chaperoning and people raising an eyebrow. So they used to put on dinners and lunches so that effectively women in the business could take men along socially and build relationships. Um, Just funny to think back on it. So it's less a dining club now, much more of an activist movement and more of a campaigning movement. And I think one of the benefits is that Now, so many women are so senior. They're running agencies. They're big dogs in client organisations. They're big in in the media. And so suddenly you've got not just working women, but really senior women leaders who are absolutely determined to use their power and influence in a way to transform culture for everyone's improvement. And if you notice, they speak as much across the peace as they do about gender. So the last WACL conference had a, a trans woman presenting, had black women leaders presenting, discusses disability. So yeah. there's a much more um, coherent and I think powerful attitude to inclusion, uh, certainly from the women that, that I know. I want to pick a few things there. One is, and I've witnessed, examples where agencies now run by men go, we have to hire a woman. We have to hire a woman on our board because we're three men in our agency, right? Which, you know, I've seen happen a few times. And I go, that's just so not getting it, right? That is just so... I mean, I... I, 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 If I was a woman, I would be just disgusted. I'd hate to join that company if you're just being brought on because you're a woman, right? Well, I suppose my my challenge to that would be not the fact that the top people were all men, yeah. but whether they were all the same kind of men. So you'd have to very go... Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, so how much diversity have you yeah. got within those within those uh-huh. men? But, you know, that's where I think it's a legitimate, why are all the cabinet Etonians? You go, well, I just think that's a really legitimate question. Yes. Why is it that we only have white men yeah. who went to one school in the country? Yeah. The that's not diversity. Yeah. So... 
if you go back to the fact that our identity mm. and the diversity of our identity is simply a proxy for cognitive diversity, because the idea is that I, as a woman, have a different lived experience yeah. than you as a man, that brings to bear a different way of thinking and problem solving, yes. which is not just about our gender, but is the fact that you're Irish, I was brought up in the Bahamas, um, I don't know what kind of school you went to, but maybe they were the Pretty same much, or so different, Dublin, yeah. whatever it was, Quite we maybe. may have children or we may not have children, and so what you... Sean bring to bear to a conversation is all of your life and education and experience and reading and skills mm -hmm. and so do I and so you're trying to get diversity of perspective so it is not simply maleness that makes evident is that diverse or not it's well how different are those men I, I haven't actually heard this before what you said I'm sure it's I'm sure you've said it far and wide but it's so I'm actually just kind of confusing it at the moment. So the, the counterintuitiveness of saying it's not a kind of linear, we get to the blacks next and then we get to the LGBT and then we get to the disabled. It's like if you do the whole thing, all of the other issues start going. Not, so in other words, your point being if, if, the, if the four men were, you know, a black guy from Barbados, you know, somebody who's gay from China. I bet you the four men probably worked with each other before yeah, well, in previous agencies they bring in their room. mate they yeah. play golf together at the yeah. weekend that's what we object to and a recipe for disaster yes, in terms of quality of advertising you yes. know as well yes how much effort are you making into your leadership team and into your organisation to bring in difference and, and how do you do that and you yeah. have to be conscious because the unconscious, the default, you end up all the you same. Because yeah. we all like to work with people who agree with everything we say and think we're marvellous. <laughs> I certainly do. It's quite troublesome I, having a diverse team. You know, it's not easy as a leader. To be an inclusive deep leader requires completely different skill set to being the leader of a group who you've almost picked because they remind me of me when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. Which, how often have you heard people say that? Yeah. How often do you hear people say, we recruit people to fit? Yeah. We want them to have the same values as we do. Why? Um, I don't know what your views are on Brexit, but certainly when I was at Aviva, I actually heard someone say that someone who voted to leave shouldn't be working at Aviva because they clearly didn't understand economics and finance. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, half the population have this view. Is, yeah. that, is that what we're saying? So if you get into that kind of cleansing, if I yeah. say it to you like that, you'd go, that's really weird. Wrong. We wouldn't yeah. only recruit Remainers or Leavers. Yeah. So why would you only recruit men with exactly the same background who've worked with each other and get on well and support the same football teams. I can rehearse it all to you because I've had to learn to accommodate it. I've had to learn to speak about rugby. I've had to learn football speak. Mm. I've had to nationally have a team. If I didn't do that, yeah. I would not be able to do the small talk before meetings yeah. and get on with my colleagues. There's a few things to unpack there. Um, uh, I, I was briefly a CEO of an agency in, in Australia. When I got there, First of all, there was a Melbourne office, and 
the agency shall remain nameless. As I said the last time, George Patterson Bates. Uh, <laughs> the guy who was in charge in Melbourne was up in Sydney and he popped his head in the door. Uh, it was 2007, so we're talking, we're talking just over 10 years ago. He popped in the, his head in the door and said, Mate, you know the way to do it, just always hire the ones with the biggest tits and you'll be fine, right? And that was his contribution to me, new in the job, right? I, I've come into this kind of toxic exam. I think it's a bit better now. Apologies if you are better now, George, but I hope you are better now. So there's that. Then there were, there, were, there were three senior account directors who were very glamorous, very beautiful women and very nice women. And I, they were like our main lead contacts. And as I got to know them and, and just as a CEO coming in and talking about what they're doing, also, they each revealed to me that they had a huge bank backed up of voicemails, inappropriate emails, chairman jumping out in the car park and attacking them after a party late at night on their way home. And they weren't all in a group. It was like independently. They had all of this stuff ready to go, ready to press the nuclear button when they wanted to. And that is shocking that they have that. But it's also interesting the way it's being played, right? In other words, the guy, the guy jumps out at you in a, you know, in a car park, you should be, you know, that should be it. This guy has to, has to answer because he just do it to somebody else. But you can equally see the huge level of protection. Again. But that's not what happens. And women know that that's not yeah. what happens. And women talk to each other. Yeah. And they know what happened to each other when someone tries to speak up. We go back to the power balance here. Yeah. And the desire not to be a troublemaker choosing your moment and how you handle it, what you do in private, what you do in public, and you don't want to lose your job. Uh, I had a case at Aviva where I had a very bullying manager and it turned out one person in his team had emails that went back a decade. I couldn't get over it. An insurance inbox that they had going back a decade. So that the... What people are coping with is extraordinary. And what gives people the courage to speak up is all about the attitude of HR. And HR are the worst at um, covering up. So do HR as a trusted function in any organisation actually deal with it, contain it, deal with it, make it go away. And what are genuinely the consequences for senior leaders? And I think we still live in an age where what you deliver is considered more important than the way you do it. And leaders who continue to bring in the profits and win the business and come up with the creative ideas, the most sexist people were always in the creative department. The reverence with which creative directors are treated, the culture of creative departments, you know, many of them are are frankly Neanderthal. And actually, if you have a very brilliant creative director or creative team who produce the goods and you've been jumped on at the car park, you really think that that, they're going to get rid of that creative team? No, they're not. And then you've gone and made a great fuss. And then that affects your working relationships and suddenly you've got the most talented creative people maybe not working on your accounts because you've caused this great ruction. I mean, these are not easy issues to I mean, tackle. My, my issue with those three girls was if there was, if there was, I'm not calling girls, women, those three women, was that if I wanted to fire one of them, I couldn't because of sins of 
forefathers who were in positions in my in my position before me. I don't know that that's the case either. Well, I, mean, okay. I, I wouldn't, be allowed, I I wouldn't think... be allowed by the machine that is the corporation because they they would be able to go. Sorry, I want. Well, I don't think so. The the last thing one is doing is applauding the idea of blackmail. I mean, Mm. that's not... No, I know you're not. So I would call that out as well. I wouldn't be blackmailed by somebody for the misdemeanours of a a colleague. So that's not right either. But the point is, I think, what happens the minute you start trying to do something genuine around your culture and being more inclusive and calling out these kinds of behaviour... You better put your tin hat on because stuff's going to come out and people are going to be speaking up and you're going to be amazed at what you're going to have to but do. You can't trap, you can't so you need to think in advance that this isn't all, oh, it's all going to be lovely and we're going to tell each other now that we're all going to be lovely to each other. Yeah. There will be real hurt and real wounds and yeah. real discrimination and real pain and there will be people who have had lesser bonuses, who've not had promotions, who've been excluded from working on the best business, whatever it is, there will be grievances in the system, exactly, and therefore these things are not easy to fix, it's a big leadership and management issue as to how you genuinely evolve your culture and get it going in the right way, and not make anybody feel accused, so the shorthand of the white straight male being the problem is something that I dislike hugely because it's such a generalization and it catches in it a whole load of men who are brilliant who are feminists who are inclusive yeah. who are um, active men, parents why do men find it hard to say they're feminists i don't know why do why know. do women there are women who find it hard to say they're feminists it's just like I, there was a whole thing with our we had, a, we had a presidential election last year and one it was uh, three women and four guys um, of varying uh, membership of the patriarchy uh, running. But, yeah, one of them, they just found it hard to say that. And I, I was actually well, at home. I, I would go as a feminist, but I went, I better go and check what that actually means, right? And I looked at them, yeah, that's what I thought it meant. And I am that. And, and, you know, you could say, and the, you know, the other, the other words, so yes, I think, I think the privileged white men get it in the neck but they get it in the neck for, well they deserve it in the neck reason. as a massive global group yes. absolutely yeah. but once you're in a firm yeah. and an organisation or a division a department it's not helpful so you can talk about the white straight male in the world or in the west but you can't if you're saying Unilever or Aviva or the marketing department it's not helpful because Everybody's got their issues, and actually, if you want people to get on board with a positive change, we've all got to admit that we've all been doing stuff wrong. I haven't been yes. doing enough to yes. help people less privileged than me, you know. So let's all join the club of we wish we'd all done more. I haven't stood up enough, I haven't called out stuff enough, I've been too ignorant, I've been, yeah. you know, I wish I'd been more of an activist sooner. So we can all beat ourselves up. That's not what's helpful. What's helpful is to say, actually, we take this seriously. We think it's business improving. We think it will increase productivity. We think we'll be a more profitable company as a result. We will have greater cognitive diversity, which is what it's all about. We'll be more innovative. We'll be a more attractive place to work. 
We'll be able to take advantage of the gig economy and the technology that is yeah. here because we'll trust one another more because there will be different ways in which we'll make people feel they belong to an organisation or a, or a movement. There's no downside to this. It's like, why wouldn't we want to do this? Yeah. But acknowledge that you're going to have to give something up. All of us are going to have to give something up. We just not, you just spoke for 90 seconds there, which there's probably not a chairman, CEO in the world who can go, yeah, you're right, okay. But why, why are they doing it? Because it means you have to give something up. Why are you what, giving up? What you have to give up is the way you've always done it. And you and I know how profound habits are. We yeah. like it when it turns into brand loyalty and repeat purchase. <laughs> yeah. So habits can be extremely good news, but habits are profound. So the effort of every day, in every meeting, requiring yourself to behave differently, requiring yourself to notice different things, it's really, really hard. Let alone when you come to how you recruit how you promote, how you allocate work, who you reward, what you seem to value. I've sat in meetings where we've been evaluating supposedly the top talent. And I promise you that they will say about the women, well, I think she needs a bit longer in that role before she's ready for a move. And miraculously, all the men are all ready for a move now because they seem hungrier because they ask for it more, because they're more assertive about it. I've observed that happen in meetings. What do we say we value in, in leadership? And actually, instead of asking why women are not more confident, why do women think they have to have 80% of the skills before they apply for the job? I would say, why is it that so many men think they only have to have 50% yeah, of the skills? Where does this overconfidence come from? And why do we, when we evaluate people, not actually take marks away from men who are being frankly overconfident? Yeah. What I'd say is there is a very old-fashioned, for want of a better word, attitude, backlash to the progress, which I don't think has been anything like enough, anything far enough, there is a strange kind of harking back to a day when a man was a man and a woman knew her place that I think is extremely, extremely disquieting. And it also affects attitudes to race and it also affects uh, attitudes to LGBT people. It's the same phenomenon of the dominant male... Yeah versus the rest, anyone else well, who, uh, who is Peterson different. Jordan Peterson would be, to me, a guy that embodies that, the Canadian kind of philosopher guy, if you don't know, but you probably picked up some of his stuff. But I guarantee you that there are millions and millions of men who will stand up to that. Because it's fucking wrong. It's not like, I oh, this I... whole, we're not going to go running with the pendulum, you know? It's like, we just told... But sorry. the trouble with someone like Jordan Peterson is that in amongst it all, he says a lot of sensible things. I know, I know. I'm reluctant also just to generalise and just simply decry Jordan Peterson. What I find troubling is that the roots of his thinking are quite biblical, mm -hmm. and I don't, I'm, I don't believe in, yeah. in the Bible. So for me, that how can you be an academic and take the roots of your thinking from the Bible? However... 
there are perfectly sensible things in some of what he says. Yeah. For instance, you know, get up in the morning, make your Straighten bed. Straighten your back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not bad advice. Tidy your room. He talks about be responsible for yourself. You and I would both agree with yeah. the idea that you have a sphere of influence. And yeah. in a way, that's all you can worry about is your sphere of influence. There are attitudes he has to the potential of women. So he, ha- he uses data in a way that I find disquieting because I think there's a systematic discrimination uh, and prejudice towards women and what they're able to do. He's also a bloody good debater, isn't he? So he, he ties people up in, in knots. But the thing, the thing I have about him is he's actually in a very important position because there are an awful lot of men who are lost, who are in, unable to even talk too much. Mind, you know, date and, and have a relationship with a woman who are vast in number, not necessarily violent, but just kind of lost, right? And I think that's the cohort that he's looking to with some of his stories and he uses. And, he, you know, this biblical stuff I hate as well because I'm an atheist, but he uses, he, he doesn't really say you have to start believing God. He, say, he says the greatest stories are already written and he tries to explain the parable-like nature of Cain versus Abel or whatever. And you listen to it and you go, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you could take someone like Sam Harris who is, I don't agree with everything he says either, but, you know, he's brave enough to call out some of the fundamental sides of Islam whenever no one else is. Parts of Islam have a case to answer and need to be kind of trying to improve a situation where, as I said earlier, I don't want any religion. I don't mind if they're worshipping Satan down the road, as long as they don't come around saying they're going to kill me if I, if, I don't, if I start supporting Satan. But these guys, I think, are brave. They're a new thing. They're, 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 only a, they're an internet, probably podcast-driven thing. And I feel sometimes when I look at Peterson that the sort of, he gives permission to men who are not necessarily as bright as he to reaffirm masculinity and power over women. I think there's a, there's a narrative in his work that does that. I think, that, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's why education is so critical. Mm. And one of the great battles that Stonewall is in right now is around the teaching of relationship education in schools. Uh, and from schools to universities, again, there's a backlash where using this terminology of, oh, everybody's a snowflake and everybody's so sensitive and it's an attack on free speech and academics need to be able to question everything and all of that. That is used as a cover for the most appalling uh, transphobia, homophobia, racism, you name it. And that's why I think schools educating children about different religions, about different kinds of relationships, about being inclusive, about being respectful, about everyone's point of view having something to offer, is incredibly important. And and we must pay great attention to what goes on in our schools and that our schools integrate children rather than separate them. Well, Norway do it well, I think. Some of the Scandin- I mean, I don't know why we're not all of the Scandinavian countries for the last 10 years who seem to have social democracy down to a T. It's not perfect. It's a lot better than what we've got in Ireland and a lot better than what we've got here in terms of health and children education. I have a problem with the, child- with the religion element because I've been saying this a few times. It's a new thing I've come, I've come up with. Is, is the built-in excuse and procrastination inherent in religion that it's all God's way 
it's all the will of God. It's inshallah. It's oive. It's tomorrow will be another day, and we we mustn't question. Is an impediment to things like fixing the climate problem. You know, it's like never mind. This is the way, the the pestilence and storms and famine that's coming. It's all yeah. You know, and, and many of these religions preach end of days and encourage end of days. And our little kids, instead of being told about proper deep geography or, or proper deep philosophy or and it, it plays through to, to to wealthy people where they can just make every they say well i was lucky ones there's poor ones as well well i again i would be reluctant just to blame faith because i think there is a lot of pseudoscience around mm-hmm. so i think there's all sorts of people who based on science, think there's no such thing as climate change. So I don't think you can only blame religion for that kind of um, fatalism, if, if you mm. want. It's very extraordinary to me where people find the evidence to, to reinforce their beliefs, their, their instincts. Point. I went to uh, two Church of England schools, one in the Bahamas, which was Scottish Presbyterian school here, which was Church of England I didn't feel faith was very strong. It was part of the culture of what happened on a Sunday. An assembly in the morning had Church of England prayers and a hymn, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like a really big deal. And right. we were, but we were not taught enough either about the Christian religion or any other religions. So I don't mind the idea of a faith school if there are cultural things that are very dominant in an area and so therefore the children are being educated in the context of that culture whatever it is in their assemblies and in how they practice their faith but what I do think is an imperative and this is where governments have to intervene is that the curriculum the academic curriculum is broad and that children are exposed to alternative ways of thinking And that's all you can ask for. I'm not trying to undermine anyone's belief system, but I do think it is incumbent to be curious uh, and to explore other people's belief systems and to learn how to come to your own view. I mean, in the end, that's what education education is. So you may or may not say in, in your faith or your... I don't know, whatever it is, wherever you live in the world, the way that what are the customs and rituals of that part of the world? Customs and rituals are not necessarily harmful to other people. Well, you know, looking at our indoctrination is different. Yeah. Indoctrination to the exclusion of any other perspective. That is what is dangerous. That's... And I don't think there is anything that you could say you must only learn this and not be exposed to the other. I defy you to to find the secular or the religious philosophy where you would go, you would only pursue this to the exclusion of everything else. I don't think we've ever come across it. What makes humanity interesting and history interesting is that it is so diverse and fascinating and there are great common things yeah. about goodness and about evil, I suppose, mm-hmm. if, you, if you put it like that, crime and punishment, mm-hmm. love, death, mm-hmm. the rituals of life. I mean, most cultures celebrate births, deaths and some kind of marriage or or union. Most cultures use food and have festivals and Mm. foods throughout the calendar year for whatever reason attached to harvests or things that the planets are doing, frankly. They go back to the the beginning of humanity. All of this is very fascinating. The difference between dogma 
and doctrine and narrowness of view and a broader a broader perspective. One of the things I'm most worried about is ending up in an echo chamber. Mm. The power of the internet, which has created community. So if I take trans back again yeah. where we started, if you were a trans person, you'd never met another one. You couldn't connect with them. Yeah. Now there's whole ways in which that community yeah, yeah. can come together, which is astonishing and wonderful and makes makes you feel you're not alone in a remote village in wherever with this difference that you don't understand. But on the other hand, there's a terrible danger of only being exposed to people who affirm your own your own views. So I'm terrified of the idea that as I walk round London, there's going to be some sort of digital tracking that means the advertising that I'm exposed to is going to be tailored and relevant to me mm. everywhere I fucking go. I don't want that. I yeah. want to see the ads directed at yeah. my children. I want to see the world in its richness and complexity. I want to be exposed to what is wasteful. Mm. It's not relevant to me, but it is about being part of the world. I want to see ads for nappies, even though it's nothing to do with me. Yeah. So, so on Twitter, I deliberately follow. Yeah, I, I where, there well. are certain people I just can't bring myself yeah. to, but they, Piers Morgan is one of them. Yeah. But I deliberately try to build in a broad church. I listen to Peter Peterson because I and start yeah, it's with some of these guys because it's, it, if, if we don't get the and I, I hate the fact that it's divided between left and right because it's just not. It's like it's a much more richer tapestry. That I want to go back. To I think we have progressive and regressive. It's probably how probably, I would think yeah. of it rather than. Because you can't. Because the left eventually joins up with yes. the right if you if you go. <laughs> the problem I want to go back to the kids thing is up, and if anyone has any young children, this spoiler alert: um, they're kind of, you know, a child in Ireland today has dogma driven into their soft brains from very early. They're exposed to the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and Jesus Christ, and at some point they're told there's no Easter Bunny and there's no Tooth Fairy and there's no Santa Claus. Is there a Jesus? Yes, there is definitely a Jesus. And to, 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 and to be so categorical, I'm not saying categorically there's not something out there. I'm saying there's categorically no evidence that says that there definitely is a God or is a Jesus. We're, there we're, was we're, definitely we're a Jesus. That would be the most extraordinary fraud ever. Yeah, yeah. There was a man called Jesus. Yes. I absolutely am convinced of that. Yeah. Just as we know, there was a Julius Caesar, and a, you know, these are these are historical figures. So, so for me to say to children, there, you know, Easter bunny is a symbol to do with spring and eggs and regeneration, mm-hmm. and and it's just our symbol. I don't think that's difficult to explain. No. And the birth of a baby. And the story around that and the values that are attached to that, I would have absolutely no difficult, you know, storytelling is important. So I think you can accept Father Christmas, the Easter Bunny, and I I suppose because I'm an atheist too, all of these stories are important and within them are interesting things to learn about and teach our children. I must say I wasn't particularly into the Easter Bunny because I didn't really understand why the bunny bought an egg? <laughs> the whole, the, the whole logic. For one week only. But any kind of, uh, I think, fantasy, storytelling, parables. Within them, there are morals. Within sure. them, there are values. And common rituals are incredibly powerful. And I think 
For me, there is nothing more blissful than the fact that this country, bizarrely, even though a huge number are not Christian, close on Christmas Day. I mean, isn't it the most marvellous thing that everybody stops? What's not fair is that our our calendar is so driven towards the holidays of the Christian faith and we don't sufficiently acknowledge all the others. Now, we're learning how to do that. We're all learning how to how to do that. But I, I like the idea of rituals and culture. I don't think we have to... The only one I want to get rid of is Guy Fawkes. I think there's something very, very disgusting about burning a guy. And I think when you know what the Catherine Reel stands for... Yeah. Halloween's and the okay. symbolism of it. No. Well, Hall- Halloween again. It was about it That's getting death, dark. Right. Wasn't you want to talk it? about birth? You want yeah. to talk about spring? It's death. It's yeah, it was about. Yeah. It was about. Yeah, so we things don't do getting Guy Fawkes dark. In we just do Halloween. Well, I think Guy Fawkes we should just get rid of. Yeah. I think everything about it is absolutely revolting. We don't like Catholics. Yeah. He was hung, drawn, and quartered. Yeah. Catherine Wheels was a form of torture. We yeah. put an effigy on a fire and burn it. I mean, I find all of that really, really Why do we put Jesus on a cross? Anyway, yes. um, last question. And we've done this beautifully in reverse because this was, by the way, this was not planned. We didn't even know where we were going to go, right? I didn't, we could have spent the last hour talking about advertising. Which would be dreadful. What do you say to your younger self that was in the Bahamas? I didn't even get to your childhood. but you What do me, you mean by... What if you I had say? to go back to her, looking back now and, and, and say the piece of advice she didn't have in her mind then that you'd like to implant or the thing that you'd like to say to her? When you're brought up in, on an island that is 21 miles long and 7 miles wide and you're in shorts and bare feet and yeah. there's two schools to go to and you go to the Protestant one, not the Catholic one, your world is very small. What I would say to myself was, you have no idea how big and exciting and complex the world is that's ahead of you but don't worry (laughs) you're going to navigate it fine so it's even though you've come from this tiny place it was still a colony for heaven's sake you know I look back on it and it belonged to another age in so many ways I mean we didn't ride horses we did have a car but I mean in so many ways in terms of the culture, the attitudes, my parents, they were expatriates. Everything was dominated about post-war. My parents talked about World War II all the time. The escape to the Bahamas from rationing and the persecution of the Jews were two profound things that were discussed in my family. So I knew there was this other world where these huge and dramatic and awful things had happened. When I was younger, I would have been more excited about the future if I'd known that I was going to come to this country and end up in jobs that were international. The amount that my work has taken me around the world and how fascinating the world is. There is still so much yet to understand. And I now understand why people say older people have the wisdom that if only you had... When you were young. I don't know what to say about that because experience is gained over time. So what can you do about that? But I, Yes, I I understand it in a way that obviously you don't. When when you're young, you think, what are they talking about? Because I think when you're in your 20s, life seems very obvious. What you believe in seems very obvious. What you think is right seems very obvious. What motivates you kind of stays the same. But... 
when you've been through a career like mine, you understand to respect and live with the complexity of life, the unresolvable, and yet to still find your voice and still contribute to this incredibly complex world. At the moment, I don't want to finish in a gloomy way, but I actually think in my lifetime, this is the most dangerous moment. And I think a lot about the fact that when I was a little girl, my parents talked darkly about the World War and how that would never happen again um, and why we had the United Nations and everything that's happened in my lifetime has been the benefit of what was learned by my parents' uh, generation. I find it very, very frightening that I feel I am observing the same symptoms and conditions that they described to me as a child that led to major, major conflict in the world. So I think we live in extremely worrying times and I want people to be awake and alert to that and to use their voices and not to be complacent. And I think it's easy to be complacent. If experience and wisdom gives me anything, it's to recognise Every time is always, oh, we've never been in a more complex, but right now it's dangerous, and I've never said that before. Keep fighting the good fight, Jan. Thank you. Thanks for being on my show. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. You too.